Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. On today's episode, we have Rob Wolf. Rob Wolf is a former research biochemist and a two-time New York Times Wall Street Journal bestselling author of The Paleo Solution and Wired to Eat. I highly recommend reading Wired to Eat. He and co-author Diana Rogers recently released their newest book, Sacred Cow, which explains why well-raised meat is good for us and good for the planet. Rob has transformed the lives of hundreds of thousands of people around the world via his top-ranked iTunes podcast, books, and seminars. He's known for his direct approach and ability to distill and synthesize information to make the complicated stuff easier to understand. Some interesting tidbits about Mr. Wolf. Rob co-founded the first and fourth CrossFit affiliate gyms in the world. He holds a brown belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, is a former California state powerlifting champion, and is part of the Discovery Channel's I Caveman series. Rob took down a 650-pound elk with an atlatl. That's a hand-thrown spear. In today's episode, we hear Rob's story. We learn about the four pillars of health. We talk about food addiction. And yes, he believes food addiction is real. We talk about helping clients abstain from trigger foods, his thoughts on cheat days, and the concept of having a healthy relationship with food. We talk about neuroregulation of appetite and volume addiction. We talk about the importance of minerals, specifically electrolytes. We talk about dairy and whether it's something we should abstain from. Rob tells us what he does daily for his health, and you're not going to want to miss how he answers the signature question. Welcome, Rob. All right, Rob, we're just going to jump right in. We're so glad to have you here today. Can you share your story about what got you interested in working in the health and nutrition space? Kind of what was your aha moment that food was essential to health? Oh, man. I mean, it's a long story. I turned 50 in January and I noticed that all of my Genesis story stuff just keep getting longer and more meandering and, and complex and everything. So growing up, both of my parents were pretty sick. Like they were just sick as long as I can remember. Both of them smoked. My dad drank a fair amount. They definitely didn't eat that well. And looking back, it was pretty clear my mom had a bunch of interrelated autoimmune conditions. We only learned about that later. She had uh, gut issues. She had her gallbladder removed, like a you know, bunch of different things. But early in that scene, I had this sneaking suspicion that if I ate better and exercised and didn't smoke at a minimum, that I would probably have better outcomes, you know? So I was always interested in kind of health and human performance. And then another really key, I guess, thing that occurred in my life, I had a girlfriend in eighth grade who was diagnosed with a glioblastoma brain tumor. We thought we were going to lose her. It went into remission. And then she motored along great until 10th grade. And then it reemerged and she ended up dying in 10th grade. And that was a huge, you know, kind of polarizing moment for me. 
in the back of my head, I was always thinking like, I want to do something in this kind of cancer space. And I, I wasn't sure if I wanted to be a doctor. I wasn't sure if I wanted to be a researcher, but I found myself ultimately tinkering with nutrition a lot. I was a California state powerlifting champion. I got into like martial arts and kickboxing and jujitsu and stuff like that. So I've always been interested in performance and eventually found myself in a research position. I did an undergrad in biochemistry, was looking at either medical school or a PhD track in autoimmunity and cancer research and found myself very, very sick. I had ulcerative colitis so bad that, you know, the only real option on the table was surgery. I'm about 165 pounds. I'm five foot nine, 165 pounds. At the low ebb of my ulcerative colitis, I was 125, 130 pounds. So if you imagine 30 pounds less of me, like I, it was terrible. And I was eating as much food as I could. It was just, I wasn't absorbing anything. And I was eating a low-fat vegan diet at the time. And I don't think that that was the whole story, but it was a lot of it. I was living in Seattle. I had not seen the sun in years. I was trying to live off of three hours of sleep a night. I had my vitamin D levels checked then, and it was 12. Like I was barely above rickets, you know? I mean, it's so that type of eating was definitely not a good fit for me. But it also, you know, in fairness, I was doing nothing right. I mean, <laughs> you know, nothing, no, no meditation, no stress mitigation, no circadian entrainment, not going outside and getting sun because of my graduate work. I would be up before the sun came up and in the lab. And then I was home after the sun went down. And so I just had like lab light all day. And that's not good for growing living things, you know, <laughs> it's really not. So it was around this time, this was 1998, that I, in a, a moment of desperation, this idea of low-carb, ancestral, really a paleo-type diet got on my radar. And I started researching that, found some information from two main people, Lauren Cordain and Arthur Devaney, who had, had done some research in this area. And a lot of what they talked about was like gut-related depression. I was in therapy at this time because what they characterized as moderate depression, but really was pretty severe depression. I mean, it was just like racking. It was just bad. It was very, very bad. And so I was pretty sick, pretty much a mess. This idea of a 180-degree change in the way I was eating was kind of presented to me. And it did it. And for me, it was just life-changing, you know, literally saved my life, this kind of lower carb, paleo type diet issues that I had had my whole life, like even some dyslexia where like words would kind of swim around on a page. Like it wasn't until I was in my 20s, I was in junior college that I became aware that I had dyslexia. Like I had this conversation with one of the instructors and I was like, don't words always swim around the page? She's like, we're going to go get some cognitive testing on you. And they're like, oh, you're dyslexic. But if you dig around in dyslexia and look at gluten sensitivity, there's some really high linkage with that stuff. So like I figured out that I don't do that well on a lot of carbs. I'm terribly you know, sensitive and reactive to gluten. Fiber doesn't even do that well for me. Like I can have a little bit of salad, not a lot of salad. I do more like meat and fruits, a little bit of seeds. But it definitely changed my life. And it did it in such a profound way that I really didn't want to do medical school. And when I looked at the research opportunities, then there was nothing like the Metabolic Health Society out there then. like There wasn't a Dom Diagostino that you could go get a PhD track and start doing this stuff. There was very, very little available there. So I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I was still doing bench level research in that cancer and autoimmunity world. 
not super satisfying, but I was casting around on the internet and I found this weird workout called CrossFit. And this was around 2001. And I showed my friend, Dave Warner, who's retired Navy SEAL this thing. He's like, we should start doing that. Let's clear out my garage and start working out together. And it was maybe four months later that we had 15 people training with us. And I was applying the nutrition that I I knew at that time and was learning and these kind of cool functional workouts. And I reached out to Greg and Lauren Glassman, the founders of CrossFit. And I was like, hey, we're doing this thing. We want to open a gym. We want to call it CrossFit. Can we do that? And they're like, yes, do it. There wasn't a contract. There wasn't anything. They just said, open a gym. And that was the first CrossFit affiliate, Gym CrossFit North. And then I had a chance to move out of Seattle back to Northern California and open what was then the fourth CrossFit affiliate gym, uh, NorCal Strength and Conditioning. And that was kind of my genesis story. Like I, I ran a brick and mortar gym for the better part of 10 years, traveled all around the world, giving seminars on nutrition and circadian biology and gut health and, and all this stuff. Did some work with Naval Special Warfare and the Navy SEALs, you know, all kinds of police, military, fire, but really have gravitated towards people who are sick, like people who have run the full gauntlet of traditional medicine. And they typically have like gut and autoimmune issues and nothing worked for them. And I'm kind of like the island of misfit toys. Like I'm the last stop on, on the road. And those, those are my people because I am that person. I am the toughest person I've ever had to work with to try to figure out what my issues are. If I had figured it out early, I might have pulled the ripcord and been done. But you know, it's been really cool because it allowed me to work with so many people, so many different situations and figure out when this ancestral eating template works perfectly, when we need to tweak it for individual differences. So it also taught me a lot of flexibility. 15 years ago, I thought a one-size-fits-all approach was a real thing. Now I know that that's farce. You know that we can use things as a beginning template because if I start talking about mTOR and autophagy and you know neuroregulation of appetite on day one, people are gone. And rightfully so. They're like, you're insane. I want nothing to do with and I'm out of here. But also we can't... What ends up happening, I notice in this health and nutrition space is people take these simple models and then they write them into stone and it becomes religious dogma. And then there's absolutely no allowing for the fact that people have individual needs and differences, both physiological, psychological, sociological, the the whole gamut. And so I'm really luckiest person alive to be able to do what I've done and have the experiences that I did. I feel like I'm I'm pretty good at what I do now. Like I've got 20 years of doing this and because of the breadth and depth of doing it, like I, I feel good as a practitioner now being able to do that stuff. And that wasn't much longer than 15 minutes. So I guess it wasn't that long to see how I told you, like given the list of questions you have, there's no way we're getting this done in less than like five hours. So yeah. No, that's perfectly okay. I loved your book, Wired to Eat. Like I was just like underline, underline, underline and like direct quote, direct quote. I mean, I just, the way that you write speaks to me. I think it's just kind of like that no nonsense. Like I'm very much like into Jocko Willink and some of those other folks that, you know, that kind of like grit. A little tough love. Little yeah, tough love. Yeah, 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 exactly. My brain likes that. And so, you know, in that, you talk about these four pillars of health that I think you started to figure out for yourself. And so I'm wondering, will you kind of talk to our listeners about what those four pillars of health are and what makes it so difficult for people to manage them in this like helpful, healthy way? Yeah, I mean, you talk about in the book, you talk about the struggles and that kind of thing. Will you kind of share a little bit about that? 
Yeah, you laid that out better than I'm going to answer. I guarantee you that. But the four pillars are food, sleep. And within sleep, it's all of circadian biology, like being outside, light on our skin, vitamin D, that whole thing, movement, and then community. And the community part is not just the people around us, but it's our gut microbiome and the soil biome. And, you know, so I, I'm a lumper, not a splitter. Like most people would have put that into 15 different categories. But I'm like, no, it's all the same. It's all the same stuff. So I, I kind of lump it all together. And, you know, the real challenge, and you don't need to go back to caveman times to have this. Like we only need to go back, you know, early 19th century. Like the light bulb was not in quite invented yet. It certainly wasn't ubiquitous. We didn't have modern industrial scale farming. We did not have a government subsidized junk food system that was tied into the media system. The bulk of the food that people ate was raised within 150 miles of where they live. And I do think that there's amazing things about a globally networked food system, like giving out avocados, you know, is, is amazing. So I'm, I'm not decrying that, but we had so much change, like the, electric light bulb and the ability to work past darkness, the ability to work indoors day or night and not know whether it is day or night, you know, that has these profound impacts on our biology. And even though I'm kind of the food guy, I would argue that the sleep and circadian biology piece is arguably more important than the food. Like if I had my whole career to do over, I would be the sleep guy and everything that I do, the movement, the community, the food is all about improving and optimizing your sleep. So if you're like, well, I'm waking up in the middle of the night and I'm having problems. Well, you're probably having blood sugar disturbances. So maybe we're going to do a lower carb diet, you know, and it's, well, I'm, I'm having these problems. Well, maybe we need to do some mobility and breath work so that you're more relaxed. And so I would couch virtually everything in that, that sleep regard. And you know, the community piece is interesting, especially in COVID, you know, like, so we're doing this thing on Zoom, which is awesome on the one hand. But if this pandemic had hit us in the 1970s, we would have never shut down the way that we did because we didn't have the technology infrastructure to allow us to stay home. And there's probably goods and bads to that. But like, before the pandemic, there was a lot of research around people who work from home. And pretty universally, what they found is that people were like 20% more efficient, like they could get five days worth of work done in like three and a half days, which was pretty cool. The downside was that people were profoundly depressed and bored because they didn't have people around them. And even though coworkers can be like the biggest pain in the ass, you can imagine like, Solitary confinement is considered cruel and unusual punishment if extended beyond a certain period of time. And we find ourselves now with a lot of people in the equivalent of solitary confinement. And social media is so toxic that I, I think that, you know, it feels like a little bit of an outlet, but then you feel like you need a, a rape shower after being on, on a social media platform. And so it's like, you know, that's really challenging. So, I mean, there's a lot of opportunities. People are starting to get back into forming in-person group connections as, you know, this kind of pandemic uh, moves forward. People are talking about resiliency. So getting together and like doing community gardens and talking about food and talking about resilience and stuff like that. And inevitably, when people do this stuff, they get happier, they get healthier, their lives have more meaning. So I think people naturally gravitate towards these types of things. And it's, it's ironic that whether you talk about social media or junk food, or I guess those are two of the biggies, but you know, there's nothing really good that comes out of that for you. 
somebody else is enriched by it. Our lives are not enriched generally, you know, and we're typically made worse for it. And But I do think that there's a pretty good groundswell of people that are, are realizing that that's kind of a dead end street and that needing to think about food, needing to think about movement, our community, we need to care for each other and, and you know, be factors in each other's lives. 15 years ago, the idea of the gut microbiome being important for health was literally considered quackery. And now it's the most important and hottest area of immunological research that exists. So a lot of things have changed. I think that we're in our infancy with all of that stuff. But an additional bugger to some degree is you really do one needs to address all those things to some degree. And maybe you pick a focus area, but you've got to have some maintenance on all of that stuff. And that is definitely a challenge because, again, you're not wanting to blow people out of the water but if you're trying to get, convince somebody to eat better, but they're still staying up playing Call of Duty till two in the morning and they don't sleep well and they haven't gone outside in weeks and they don't get the sun on their, their skin, then the food is only going to be like a stopgap. Then we have to get on top of the sleep and circadian rhythm. Now we need to get meaningful social interactions because playing online games, it can be cool. It can be an outlet, but it's not... It's not the same as going and hanging out with people. That's mainly why I do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu because it's literally free hugs for two hours. You know, people are trying to choke you at the same time. But if you want, there's hugs galore there, you know, and, and uh, our whole family does it. My two daughters, my wife and I, and it's really the social component that is, is huge there. No, I think you are speaking our addiction recovery language because the way that we work with the, are the individuals who you know struggle with food addiction or anyone in addiction recovery is a holistic approach, right? Yeah. Mental, physical, emotional, spiritual. We want to touch all those pieces and that's what your pillars of health cover. So like, thank you so much for sharing about the importance of all those things because, you know, specifically working in this food addiction space, we often, you know, the clients come to us and it's all about the food, right? Get me the food plan, get, let me know what I need to do. And it's like, okay, food is like 10%. Then we really need to look at the other pieces of our life. So in this let, highly- Let me know this one thing I can look yeah. at so that I can ignore everything else that I really should be doing. <laughs> yeah. Right, exactly, yeah. Yeah. right? Yeah. You're like, oh, we're going to do the food and then we're going to address the life. And they're like, oh, let's just stay on the food part. Like the yeah. life part, that'll figure itself out, right? I don't need to do any work there. <laughs> right, right, right. So in this new environment of highly processed, hyper palatable foods, we have come into a place where most of the individuals that seek help from us struggle with food addiction. We'd like to know, what are your thoughts on food addiction? Do you believe it's a real thing? And why do you think there's so much resistance in the medical space or nutrition space to acknowledge that it's possibly, you know, could be true for some individuals? Yeah, you know, it, it's perplexing to me. And again, I'm kind of a lumper, like we mentioned. It, you know, would you really? So, my background is in biochemistry with a fair amount of toxicology. And usually, when you talk about addiction, we're talking about some degree of like physiological dependence on a situation. There may actually be some super negative physiological downsides to the removal of something. So like alcohol withdrawal, methamphetamine withdrawal, heroin withdrawal. So in that regard, it doesn't fully tick all the boxes. But then when you think about the behavioral drive, the tendency to do things that are 
obviously counterproductive to the welfare of the individual, of people that they love, of the ability to rationally mitigate. So it doesn't tick boxes in the kind of physiological biochemical side super nicely, although I would say like dopamine and neurotransmitters are absolutely going on there, but it absolutely ticks a lot of the like sociological and psychological boxes. So for me, I don't really get why there's this pissing match around it. And at the end of the day, it so negatively impacts folks' lives. And it's, you know, if we think about societal costs, like cardiovascular disease, heart disease, and kind of diabetes-related issues, the Congressional Budget Office in 2004 had a projection that we will be bankrupt by 2035 due to diabetes-related issues. And maybe some of that's food addiction. Maybe some of it's just, I don't know, poor access, food deserts, you know, the list go on and on and on. But it seems to make sense to me that let's just find strategies that work to help people live better, healthier lives. You know, and if this thing nests 60% under a category that feels okay calling it addiction, then cool. And if we don't have overt physiological changes consistent with like methamphetamine withdrawal, okay, we don't tick that box. So it's not a perfect fit, but these models are virtually never perfect anyway. You know, not everybody gets to do an Isaac Newton or an Albert Einstein and have a model that like transforms the universe and, you know, ticks every box in there. And I think that that's where work like what y'all are doing is so powerful because, you know, we have to figure out what the issue is or an issue to even start kind of painting the person into a corner. It's like, okay, if you want to do something, then we kind of need to understand what the parameters of this are. And then is there a desire to do something different? Yeah, there is. Okay, well, we got to understand our situation and then we can start building some strategies for how we, we get ourselves out of this predicament. And if we don't have, to some degree, a name for it, I think that that's really challenging. And I that can be challenging too. Like my mom had a lot of health issues and I think that she came to identify with those health issues. I think there was almost an anxiety on her part that if she got healthy, like I wouldn't take an interest in her life anymore because, you know, we so bonded in trying to figure out her health issues. There was this kind of codependent thing there. And well, what will exist if she's healthy then? And it's like, well, walks and travel and you know going to Glacier National Park and stuff like that, you know, but it can be scary. Like folks can clearly develop an identity around illness and that can be a hard thing to shape. Yeah. And I think too, and again, I'm going to keep referencing your book. I just love it so much. In it, you had referenced Gretchen Rubin's work about moderators, abstainers, and that's certainly language we use with some clients as well. You know, and you had mentioned, yeah, it's kind of 50-50. 50% of us fall into moderation, 50% of us fall into abstainers. But then you have these registered dietitians that 90% of them are moderators. And yeah. that can really perpetuate some of this, like the camps, you know, David, we yep. interviewed this gentleman, David Wiss, and he calls it, you know, camps. And like, it's just like this black and white and this fighting. And, and at the end of the day, does it really matter what we call it? If people are showing up and saying, this is my truth, isn't it on us? I mean, I'm a licensed mental health and licensed addiction counselor. Clarissa is a registered social worker. Like this is, isn't it on us then to say like, how do we help you? And everything I'm hearing from you, like, it sounds like you try to show up the same way for people. Just meet them where they're at. This is their truth. Yeah. This is what I'm trying to do. So, you know, can you talk a little bit about that? Like the dogma, like what does that get us? Like what is the drive behind that? What's the motivation behind that? For people who don't understand that they're hearing dogma, right? Because it's just been so normalized for them. Like, 
Can you kind of help us sift through that for our clients so that we can help them abstain from some of these trigger foods that registered dietitians are saying, no, you should have the cupcake for breakfast or go ahead and have that stevia in your whatever. And we're saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. History says this doesn't work for you. Maybe we should abstain from that. Can you help us with that? Yeah, this is so... Some of what we've talked about, I feel pretty confident from like an evidence-based medicine perspective, like I could pull citations and build a case around. This is pure opinion. So people can take that or leave it. But I I would be hard-pressed to defend this in like an evidence-based way. This is purely observational. But what I've noticed out of the registered dietetics camp is that there is this profound anxiety around limiting food options and that this is going to lead into disordered eating. That absolutely happens. That It absolutely happens. It's terrible. It can be life-altering. It can be life-ending. Clearly, you know, you get into an anorexia or bulimia type of scenario. And what I'm going to say next is going to sound horrible, but it's where I am. And so people can hate me or they can beat me where I am. But the challenges that face Western civilization is not going to be decided around people who have, you know, like anorexia, bulimia. What is going to potentially tank the economy of Western civilization is the eating patterns that are consistent with this modern industrial food system. And so, yes, there is an area that people need to focus on that. Yes, we need to be careful with certain populations. And I think that this is where like licensed healthcare counselors who specialize in those areas should like, we should have a triage process and we should be grabbing those people and getting them. They should not be listening to me at all. They shouldn't be anywhere near my website. You know, like that is not the appropriate message for those people, but for the vast majority of people if we're going to affect the most global change in the stuff that I think is going to work the most for people, there is just a reality that if moderation worked, you probably figured that out already because it's been sold. It's been tried. You know, It's like if you've tried being this sprint athlete and you're the last person to finish the race every single time, and then you start training a little bit for longer distance and you start winning races, you're like, oh, I'm kind of slow twitch and I've got really good lung capacity. You you find the methodology that works for you. And so I think moderation has like, if people haven't succeeded with moderation, then you're probably an abstainer. And within that abstinence deal, I've found that there's even nuance within this. And I've talked to Gretchen about this stuff, like sweet stuff. I'm kind of like, eh, you know, every once in a while, something's pretty good, like a good cherry cheesecake or something like, oh, yeah, I'll probably have some of that. But I have never met a plate of nachos I didn't like, you know, salty, crunchy. I'm gluten intolerant. But we, we went to the fair a couple of weeks ago. My kids have never had a corn dog. Fortunately, they don't seem to be reactive to gluten, even though we don't really eat it that much. But I got them a corn dog and they were like, dad, this is amazing. And I was literally like drooling on myself. I never miss anything gluten containing, but I was like, God damn, that corn dog looks good, you know, but I'm just not going to take that bullet. But it's that kind of sweet, salty umami all in one form. So like a corn dog, nachos, I'm trying to think of something else, pizza, those things like they're uh, uh, corn chips, chips and salsa. There is not an off switch. There is not a bag of chips too large that I couldn't eat. So we could have chocolate in the house. We could have some birthday cake. And I just don't care. Like I literally, I'm totally unmotivated for that. I can moderate that stuff. I cannot moderate chips 
I can't moderate nachos. I can't, you know, so even within this moderator abstainer thing, I think that people find, and you said it, there's trigger foods that are just like, if I really want that, then I'll go have it at a restaurant and I have it every once in a while. I will go to Mexican food and I'm like, it's nacho day today. I had a rough jujitsu workout. I'll, I'll go ahead and do it. And, but I don't have it at home. I don't have it in the house because I will go in and fix it all and I will eat it all. I just know that. So I create at least that additional little speed bump that, you know, I need to leave the house, go procure it somewhere else, recognize that it's going to give me horrible gut ache for a day or two. And it's like, okay, I, I will remember that for another couple of months. And, and there you go. And I'm not sure if I entirely addressed all that stuff. But, you know, I think it is vastly more injurious to assume that everybody needs to be a moderator, particularly when we look at the thing that is cratering our healthcare system is this diabetes, you know, over consuming of food. That is the thing that we really have to get on top of. Yeah, no, I think you did a really great job of explaining like, there are definitely moderators, there are definitely abstainers, but even within the moderators, there may be foods that they need to abstain from. And within the abstainers, there may be things that they can actually moderate. It's something, you know, and this is what we work with our clients on. There's a lot of fear often around sweet potatoes or parsnips or, you know what I mean? Like those starchier vegetables yeah. can become a fear zone. And so then we have to work with our clients to like, well, let's actually let's test the that tires out. on it and see. Yeah. Yeah. yeah let's yeah. actually see what happens. So so yeah, so thank you so much. And and that just reminds me of like, you're always talking about like, am I willing to like deal with the outcomes or the consequences of my choice of putting this food in my mouth? So that, yeah, yeah that definitely, yeah, for sure. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. So kind of along those lines, I'm wondering, I've heard you speak about cheat days and the relationship with food. I'm wondering if you can share your perspective on this and how these ideas can hinder someone's health in the long run. Yeah. So I'm definitely in a minority on this. And I've had some people very cranky with me. They think that I'm like mean or insensitive. And I may be wrong in this. Like this is a position that I have. And 20 years from now, 10 years from now, I may look back and say that I'm wrong. But the position that I'm at with say like, I need a healthy relationship with food is born of the last 20 years of seeing people navigate this environment. And what I've noticed is that the people that will make this proclamation, I'm trying to get a healthy relationship with food, they never get there. Like they're so focused on this nebulous thing. I'm a little bit of a math geek and, and like, uh, so there's pie, there's like, you know, the center of a circle. They've calculated pi out to like a trillion decimal points or something like it just keeps going and going. You can always get a little bit closer to the center. And this is kind of in my head, the best analogy that I have for this process. You never really get there if the focus is having a good relationship with food. What I found was that that was a distraction. It was this way to just undermine your progress. But if we decide that we understand that I eat food. There are consequences to the food I eat. Alpha, omega, done. Like that's it. And then we decide what are the outcomes that I want. And then we couch everything around that. And, you know, in releasing Wired to Eat, I had a, a remarkable number of people that were cranky about me suggesting that. But fortunately, more people said, I've been in this 10 year, 20 year, 30 year process of trying to get a better relationship with food. And then when I read that, it was literally light switch was flipped because I heard this crazy thing and it really makes a lot of sense. Like when we're kids, you all believed in Santa Claus at some point, right? And I mean, you believe in Santa Claus to the core of your being. 
And then there might come some questioning and stuff like that. But typically something happens. You either see your parents shuffling presents under the Christmas tree on Christmas Eve or whatever. But you go from 100% belief to 100% disbelief instantly. There's not a process. There's not a therapist involved. It is a transformative one moment to the next deal. And this is what I see happen with people when they really wrap their head around this notion that like this whole having a good relationship with food is not the thing. I need to understand that there are consequences to the food I eat. And when people embrace that, like 30 years of struggle disappears instantly. And so I I feel confident that we're on the right track with this. There may be tweaks and nuances that we develop over time, but too many people said that they struggled for so long and then this just went literally like like the belief in Santa Claus. It just disappeared and they were on a, a completely different track. So the relationship with food and what was the other part of the question? I'm forgetting the... Cheat days. The cheat days. Whenever we emotionalize something, then we start the dopamine wind up. You know, and we start going and something that's interesting when you look at folks that have been drug addicted in particular, the heroin addict will start thinking they will start getting super excited about just getting their box of gear out. And they think about like the feel of the wood that it's in and what it smells like when they open it. And there's this multiple sensory experience and people do the same thing with cheat days. They start thinking about their cheat day. If the cheat day is on Friday, they're thinking about it Sunday and they're living for that thing. And like every moment is kind of winding up to that. And you not infrequently, a cheat day turns into a week off of rails. And so what I found was that I wanted to like de-emotionalize and de-dopamine that whole thing. So this is again where my first recommendation that folks make when they start doing dietary change We clean out the pantry. We only have pretty safe options initially. And then we figure out what type of latitude we have with it. So there's a a really fascinating study that looked at folks who are eating peanut M&Ms, which is another one. So that is sweet, but it's also salty. So like I could crush some peanut M&Ms, but they looked at the consumption patterns of people who had a bowl of peanut M&Ms on their desk versus in a drawer that they had to scoot out their chair, open up the drawer and reach inside or they had to walk across the office to the spot where there was a bowl of peanut M&Ms. And they basically had to do the walk of shame going there. Like everybody going there, everybody else in the office knew they were going there for the peanut M&Ms. And what they found is that the consumption of M&Ms, just putting them in the drawer was 50% less than on the tabletop. So that ease of access was so profound. And then it was like 95% less if you had to get up, walk across the room and also suffer the hazing of people. And also the researchers figured out that they had to take the bowl away about 15 minutes before work ended because people would just run by there as they were on their way out the door and like scarf a handful of that stuff. So the cheat day thing, you know, the proximity, the ease of access, like all of that just is dangerous. It's frankly dangerous. So I see it being problematic from the kind of dopamine windup of anticipating it, having that stuff on hand. Most people hit decision fatigue by like noon any given day. If you have kids, if you have a job, you've made all the decisions that you were physiologically capable of making for a day and you did it in like four hours. And when decision fatigue sets in, our ability to have uh, self-control, it's just gone. Like it's just cooked. It's gone. So all of that stuff sets us up for problems. And so instead of cheat days, I just recommend that, you know, if you're out at a dinner and like they have a flan or a cheesecake or, you know, something that you really love, 
eat it, have it, like go for it. And then don't bring it home. Don't buy the extra piece of it. Don't, you know, if you want ice cream, have some ice cream and then that's it. Just don't have it around the house and don't turn it into this like hyper emotionalized thing. Have it be part of your life and it popped up like you're at a wedding or something. Okay, you know, kick your heels up, have have some drinks, do whatever, but you know, whatever the problematic foods are, if it's not like this planned event, like planning adultery or something, like so much of like cheating on people is like the planning of it, you know, that people get all like excited about so long as it doesn't look like that. And so long as you don't have super immediate, easy access to it, people are going to be able to navigate things. And then they also, the backside of that is if they're like, well, if I'm out somewhere and I'm having a good dinner, and I want to do this thing, then you do it. And then there's not the additional psychological thing of I'm never going to have XYZ again. It's like, no, that's not necessarily the case. Let's just stack the deck in your favor so it doesn't become this kind of crippling process. Yeah. And that's certainly the same information I give to my clients who are like harmful users. My folks who are actually like full-blown, right? It would be like that one bite and then it's off to the races. You know, that whole one's never, you know, one's too many, a thousand's never enough for sure. But yeah, I mean, that makes so much sense. And, And I often say like, God love Freud. I wouldn't have a profession if he had never existed. But I also feel like there was this huge like, tide turn that like now we have to like make everything about something and it can't just be like well we're biologically wired for a lot of this stuff why can't it just be that why do we always have to like make it dramatic i don't know it's the human condition maybe right right so speaking about that and backing up just even a little about you know your story about the nachos will you talk to us about that neural regulation of appetite and how that switch can actually be overridden like what is actually happening there that, you know, I'm a person that if I'm in a real bad emotional way, I could totally overdo it on Brussels sprouts and steak. It doesn't have to be a hyper palatable, you know, traditionally speaking kind of thing. Can you kind of talk about what's happening there? Yeah. I mean, and man, there's a lot there. Hopefully I do a half decent job on this, but all organisms are wired, you know, that move to seek food. They're wired to optimize nutrition. So there's this thing called optimum foraging strategy where organisms figure out these really crafty ways of getting the maximum amount of nutrition out of their environment and kind of calories while doing the least amount of work. And this is just a, it's like a Newtonian or Einsteinian thing. Like it is a law of nature and it makes a lot of sense. With technology and modern conveniences, we can produce literally a a virtually infinite amount of food infinite flavor options. And in the book, I point out an example, uh, Adam Rickman, Man Versus Food. And he does this kitchen sink ice cream sundae challenge where he starts eating this eight pound ice cream sundae. And it's it's got everything in it. And they literally serve it in a kitchen sink. And he gets maybe a fifth of the way through the thing. And he starts like kind of gagging. He turns green. And so we also experience something called palate fatigue, where we get bored of any given thing that we're eating. And there's great evolutionary wiring for this. Blueberries are great, but if you ate enough blueberries, they could potentially be toxic. Steak is great, but if you overeat protein, like once you go past about 40% for too long, you get, get protein toxicity. So we have these dueling banjos of optimum foraging strategy, trying to get as much you know out of our environment as we can while doing as little as we can. We also have this experience of palate fatigue. And we can bypass palate fatigue by getting variety. And what Adam Rickman did to succeed in this ice cream eating challenge is he ordered a plate of extra salty, extra crunchy french fries. 
And he would eat a couple of French fries, then do a bite of ice cream, a couple of French fries, bite of ice cream. And kind of a back of the envelope estimate was that the plate of French fries was probably like 1,500, 2,000 calories by itself. And again, that standard dietetics model would be that he should have not succeeded because he was eating more food and his belly was fuller, but they forget the neuroregulation of appetite. And if I can juxtapose palate experiences, you know, so cool, sweet, creamy in the ice cream versus salty, crunchy, umami in the potato chips or the, uh, the French fries, you couldn't have a greater difference. And so he was only able to succeed. He was able to eat the ice cream sundae by eating more food. And this is another one of these things. I saw this thing maybe 15 years ago. Like we were watching a little bit of Food Network stuff. And I was like, oh my God, this is like optimum foraging strategy and palate fatigue. And it just stuck in my head. And then when I did Wired to Eat, we incorporated that story into the book. And I, I share this video pretty frequently. So these are the things that the modern food environment can really be a challenge to deal with. And I don't know if this other part is super helpful, but contemporarily living hunter-gatherers, when they look at what these folks tend to eat, they have like an ordering of the stuff that they really enjoy, like the sub-Saharan sun people. They really like meat. They really like honey. And then it kind of like steps down from there. What's fascinating for most hunter-gatherers, there is always food around. Like they can find something to eat. It's very, very rare that these folks actually starve. But what's really interesting, at least to me, is that the son will move to a new area and the foods that they really like are usually within pretty close proximity. Like there's some trees with honey, there's easy game. And then what happens is they start working in concentric circles longer and longer and longer. They will go further and further and further away to get the food they like. Whereas there is food immediately like out their front door, there's tubers, there's this, there's that. But they're like, eh, that's kind of starvation food. Like that's literally what they call it. They're like, this is lean times food when you can't find anything else. And they will expand their range to pretty remarkable degrees, even though they're putting out more work, but they so enjoy the meat or the honey or, you know, the berries or whatever it is that it will hit some point where it's so onerous to go that far to get more food, but they could get some type of food, you know, immediately hand they're like, forget it. Let's just move the whole camp. And so I think that that kind of speaks to when we like something, we will go to extraordinary lengths to procure that stuff. And the things that people tend to like tend to be very flavorful. They tend to be very energy dense. And we will expend a lot of inconvenience to get that versus eating the Brussels sprouts or the undercooked tuber, or, you know, whatever it is. And I think if people are able to step back and kind of look at that, at that objectively, it's like, oh, no wonder. I do this and no wonder having like ice cream in the freezer is a disaster because it's the thing I want and I don't have to do a damn thing to get it. Yeah, I think having that, you know, super calorie dense and hyper palatable food is so accessible has what has created, you know, this diabetes. It's like all access 24 hours a day to all these different foods that are flavored specifically by scientists in labs that know how the brain works and know how to get you to, I bet you can't eat just one, right? right. It's kind of right. like that, those addictive like tactics, like they know we can't control ourselves when we start to consume these foods. So what are the potato chips that are shaped like a saddle? Are those Doritos? The rough or Doritos? Lays potato Lays, chips, right? Yeah. Like they're in a can. Apparently something like $12 million has been spent 
on the mouthfeel alone uh-huh. of how it snaps in your mouth. Like enormous sums of money are, have been spent in the auto industry so that when you shut a door, it has this really like, oh, strong, secure kind of sound to it. And so things as kind of weird as like the snap and crackle mouthfeel of a potato chip going in your mouth. Like there's a bunch of food chemists and engineers thinking about like, well, if we cook this thing a little bit hotter and we do this to the starch backbone, then it's going to make it a little bit stronger and it'll snap in a more profound way. And and then when they test people how many they eat in a given amount of time, they're like, well, this thing wins. And yeah, and that's what we're fighting. And what's funny is, so like Unilever, which is one of these huge food conglomerates, this was back like 2012, but they released that they were putting $50 million into evolutionary biology, evolutionary psychology research with their products. So the people who are selling us these products totally get this evolutionary model. They totally get the neuroregulation of appetite. They get all of this stuff. And if we go to the standard dietitian, doctor, university dietetics professor and present this stuff to these folks, they look like you have three heads or like, what on earth are you talking about? Just eat less, move more. And so the peddlers understand all this stuff at a remarkably high level, very sophisticated, very well-funded. And then our gatekeepers know almost nothing about it. So like, this is like trying to fight a fight with your hands behind your back and you're blindfolded and the person has a baseball bat. Like we, this is why we collectively have a lot of job security because no matter how good we are at this stuff, like we're never, we're never gonna, gonna fix it all. But it, it also speaks to kind of what we're up against. And even as people understand that, like uh, pre-pandemic breakfast cereal sales had decreased for the first time in, excuse me, like 50 years or something like that, you know, on a per capita basis. So some of this low-carb message is, is getting out there. Uh, sugared sodas consumption had decreased markedly. So I think some of this stuff gets out there eventually, but you know, it's a long slog and we don't have yet that many great friends in academia with this stuff. Yeah, and it's still hard because, you know, we are transitioning people away from these, you know, dogmatic messages that they've had their whole life, like low fat, no salt. And this is something you specifically speak to. And we, you know, sodium has been demonized and it is very hard for us to work with our clients to say, okay, now you are not eating processed foods because they're eating whole foods and you need salt because they're like, Mm -hmm. no, my doctor said blood pressure, kidney problems, heart, like, no, I've been getting this message my whole life. Like, I don't need to add salt to anything. We have our body has salt. Like, can you explain to our audience why individuals who are going to like a low carb or keto food plan, why salt is so necessary mm-hmm. and why it's like one of the only minerals that's maybe necessary? Yeah, it's funny. It is the only nutrient that we have a sense of taste for. So like if you crunch up B vitamins, they will taste like something, but it tastes awful. If you taste magnesium citrate, like it'll kind of taste like something, you know, sweet, salty, sour, umami. It is one of our primary tastes. And it, it is because potassium in whole unprocessed foods in a natural food environment is ubiquitous. Sodium is really rare. Like it, organisms have to work pretty hard to get sodium. There are these spectacular pictures and videos of like Italian mountain goats that will go on these ridges along old dams where the water is seeped through and it it leaves salt deposits because we're trying to get the salt there. Uh, Salt is a, sodium is a, a critically important vital nutrient. If it drops too low, 
We will get sick. If it drops lower, we will die. So it's a really important thing to get. The bugger is that processed food is usually rich with sodium and it enhances the flavor. It's one of the reasons why we tend to eat more food. But when we shift to a minimally processed, mainly whole food diet, the bulk of the sodium goes away with that. And what we find, it really profoundly, people who are eating a low-carb diet, they really need to replace that sodium. But it's true even if you do more of like a whole food Mediterranean diet or something like that. Like What happens is this process called the naturesis of fasting. When people fast or they're in a ketogenic state, their insulin levels decrease dramatically because we tend to release insulin in response to food in general, but carbohydrates in particular. And then insulin controls another hormone called aldosterone. And aldosterone is a renal hormone that is critical in our, our fluid retention and sodium retention. And somebody that's overeating and they're insulin resistant, they will tend to be hypertensive, have high blood pressure, and they're retaining too much sodium. But if somebody begins fasting, if somebody eats a lower carb diet, and again, this can be a really broad spectrum. It doesn't have to be keto or paleo or carnivore. They will notice that they have lethargy, fatigue, brain fog, hand swelling, and it can get pretty severe. And what we find is just really aggressively adding salt to the diet, things like pickles, pickle juice, olives, sardines, or doing something like Element or something like that, some sort of a dedicated electrolyte product just dramatically changes that that whole picture. And, you know, tying this back into the neuroregulation of appetite, there's another hypothesis out there called the protein leverage hypothesis that suggests that most organisms eat to a protein minimum. And once we get enough protein, then we tend to be done eating because that's how we get the bulk of our nutrition. And this is true for like cows and horses, ruminants, you know, omnivorous animals, apparently Predatory animals don't really have a protein leverage thing going on because all they eat is other critters. I, I just became aware of that recently. But sodium is a really important piece of this story because typically protein-rich foods also tend to be relatively sodium-rich foods. So there's this concept in you know neuroregulation of appetite circles called sodium appetite where we are eating towards kind of a sodium minimum. And if we tend to eat sodium adequately, you will also notice that you tend to have less hunger. And this is where we've noticed folks, what, again, whether it's pickle juice or olives or what have you. And also you find like the good air fuel mixture, like some people do better on more carbs, some people do better on low carbs. But if you get like the carb fat deal figured out and you get adequate sodium, what you find is you eat a meal and you don't get hungry again for a long time. And then you get hungry and then you eat again and the composition is good. And then you don't get hungry again for a long time. And a lot of people find that they're like two meals and a snack. And it's very, very difficult to overeat because the food is satiating. It tends to be rather bulky. So, you know, it, it just kind of fills you up. And then because you feel satisfied for so long, because the sodium and, and protein needs are addressed, you're not grazing all day, which is, you know, another way that you tend to avoid the overeating piece. So the the sodium is just important in so many different areas like breastfeeding and some medical conditions like POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, where people get lightheaded going from seated to standing. They're really well-versed in this need for sodium, but we've had really great feedback from some folks like that. Can you talk to us just a little bit about creating your product element? Because I think it's just so great to let people know that this electrolyte drink occurs. I called it element for <laughs> like the 
longest time. And people were like, what are you talking about? I'm like, you're the only person who's ever done that. Yeah, I'm sure. Right. But yeah. And then when somebody said element, I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. But yeah. Sodium, potassium, magnesium, element. Yeah. Periodic table. Right. Yeah. 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 So I will try to keep this one brief, but it is kind of a cool story. Like we didn't set out with the plan of like becoming salt moguls, but I have eaten a low carb diet for 23 years. I've tinkered with adding carbs in, but I, I would get on the carb roller coaster. I would get hungry. Like I, I didn't have good, you know, neuroregulation of appetite. I tended to eat more than really what I, I felt good with, but it was hard to fuel the training that I do, like the Brazilian jiu-jitsu and stuff like that, like seemed to require more carbs. And again, I struggled with this for more than 20 years. And I met these two guys, Tyler Cartwright and Luis Villasenor, who run a, a program called Keto Gains, which is a adequate protein, low carb approach to body transformation. And it was fascinating. Like their average clientele is it's 75 to 80% women between the ages of 35 and 55. And I was just like, holy smokes, you know, and they were crushing this stuff. There were a number of the women who competed in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Some of them did CrossFit at a high level. Like, how are they doing this? You know, so I started talking to Tyler and Luis and showed them what I was doing. And they're like, I think you're good on your protein, carbs, fat, but you probably aren't getting enough sodium. And because I'm a biochemist, I didn't listen to these guys straight out of the gate. Like they've coached tens of thousands of people. And even though I knew about this whole naturesis of fasting, when you're in a low carb state that you need more sodium, but I salted my food. I thought that it was enough. And it took me a good year of whining and complaining, you know, things aren't working. And they're like, no, man, really like weigh and measure everything, put everything into chronometer, including the salt that you add to things. And they wanted me getting five grams of sodium a day and I was getting less than two. And it was no wonder I felt like garbage. And so I started eating like a lot of olives. They made a do-it-yourself drink called Keto Aid is what we called it. And it's like this much salt, this much no salt, stevia, lemon juice, shake it up. And so I started doing that and it was just a miracle. And when you think about the fact that every activity in our body is driven by sodium potassium pumps, if you're inadequate sodium, then obviously you're going to feel horrible, you know? And that's even north of like cramping and stuff like that, which is a sign of like overt electrolyte loss, specifically sodium. So we put together this keto aid PDF and we started disseminating it to all of their folks, all of my folks. And it was like six months down the road and we had a half million downloads of this thing. It was crazy. And people were just raving about it. They're like, all these problems I had, like they totally resolved. Everything is great. The one problem I have is when I travel, the three bags of white powder I bring with me are problematic for TSA, you know? And, and we started getting tagged on social media where people were like getting practically body cavity searched, you know, going through TSA. And so our folks following us were like, you know, it would be really cool if you guys made a product that we could just take with us. And that's honestly where this whole thing came from. It was recognizing my problem and addressing it after being a knucklehead and not listening to my coaches for a year. But then, you know, providing this free download. And we still have this thing. Like we, and it still gets downloaded all the time. Like we, and part of the guide is sodium rich foods. Again, you know, like pickles and olives. 10 olives has a gram of sodium. You know, if you like things like, Sardines, like one can of, of sardines has a gram of sodium. If you do some cheese and salami or pepperoni, like three ounces of salami is like two grams of sodium. So we, you know, we provide all these dietary sources for sodium, but then like if you're on 
on the run or, you know, you throw some element in a drink. I had some, uh, this is black tea with a little bit of additional stevia and also the raspberry element. And it's insanely good. Like I just can't even believe how good it is. And I feel super good with it. And we diluted a little bit for our kids. And again, like we've just had all this buy-in from different medical circles. Right before COVID, we had a study that was queuing up looking at breast milk production with folks that were supplementing with Element because we had been tagged on social media from all these exclusive breast pumping moms. You know, so there's these different groups, some people pump only, some people breast breastfeed and pump, but this exclusive pumper group. And one of the gals used Element and she showed like this bottle tiny amount of milk the day before and then literally like four bottles of milk the next day and i got in and started researching i'm like oh it totally makes sense like if you just drink fluid that's not going to drive through the breast tissue you need sodium is the driver that brings the fluid and the nutrients through the breast tissue so you need water and electrolytes for that stuff to work so it's grown like crazy like a you know very very fortunate and again I've tried to do all kinds of crazy things. Like we had a medical risk assessment program that we rolled out with the city of Reno and it saved the city $22 million with a 33 to one return on investment. And I've done work with the Chickasaw nation doing similar stuff. Like I've tried to do all these really big things and it's been cool. Haven't really got traction on any of that. And then selling people salt that they put in their beverage has gone like wildfire and it's just crazy, but very grateful for it. And at the end of the day, it really does seem to help people. Like it, we see a lot of folks that are in the discovering that the neuroregulation of appetite is a really important thing. They find that adequate sodium intake is a huge, like non-negotiable piece of this whole thing. So it's great to hear feedback from folks like you. They're like in the trenches of a process like that, getting some benefit for your folks. Yeah, that pinch of salt under my tongue has always been the last four years has really been like my like, I'm not like I'm not really hungry, or why am I seeking food? I shouldn't be hungry kind of deal. And yeah, and now having your product and I just turned my dad branches in another part of Montana. And he was like, Oh, I'm really cramping up. And I'm like, let me get something (laughs) for you. So he's been really happy about that too. So we don't want to keep you too much longer, but we have just a couple more questions for you. We could go on and on. As you know, we got a little ambitious with what we wanted out of this conversation. I pushed my next obligation back a full hour. So you guys can sink your meat hooks into me about as much as you want. All right. Well, thank you so much. Okay. Well, then I will go on to the next contentious topic of dairy. We know that traditionally, you know, and again, not to get too dogmatic about it, but traditionally paleo would say, avoid the dairy and, but keto would say, go ahead and do it. You know? So like, what is your take on dairy? Like, does it affect our hormones? Does it affect metabolism and autoimmune and all that kind of stuff? Like, can you just kind of walk us through like the arguments and where that kind of leaves us? Yeah, it's kind of a complex topic. Uh, Honestly, I had terrible cystic acne as a kid. And looking back, it was about 100% dairy driven. Like when I pieced all this stuff together, uh, dairy is what's its kind of evolutionary imperative to take small mammals and turn them into large mammals. So it's got all these growth factors and it's uh, very palatable. It's easy to consume it. It's easy to get a lot of calories in it. Some of those growth factors like the EGF, the epithelial growth factors are definitely problematic for acne and had a lot of problems with that. So when I removed dairy from my, largely from my diet back 
early in this, this experience, like I was tinkering, I noticed that the little bit of acne I would get on my jawline and on my shoulders and everything, it was just gone. And then I would have some cheese or some yogurt and it would pop back up. And so that's a piece of this story. Another piece of the story is that just in working with clients, we noticed that dairy was easy to overdo. Like it would get them over their calorie goals really easy because it tastes great. You know, I mean, a really good block of cheese, like again, like I, it's hard for me to find an off switch with that. You know, it's kind of, kind of funny. So the main challenge that I saw were it kind of pro-inflammatory state. So a lot of folks with rheumatoid arthritis and gut issues, multiple sclerosis, lupus, they seem to benefit from some dairy removal. Then we get into the type of dairy. You have the A, you know, the A1 versus A2 caseins, which some old breed dairy cattle and also camels, goats, sheep, they're this A2 casein. And it seems to be less pro-inflammatory. And I had definitely noticed personally that the consumption of these other types of dairies, I didn't really get you know, inflammation and joint issues and problems like that. So autoimmune stuff and gut stuff, we noticed that people oftentimes saw some improvement. We definitely saw that people had a tendency to overeat with the inclusion of dairy in the mix. But then we fast forward. And when I started tinkering with carnivore, I noticed that if I didn't eat much plant material, which improved my digestion, I could eat dairy all day long and I got no acne and I had no joint inflammation from it. So I am as confused on this topic as you could possibly imagine. I think it's very much this, so what are we concerned about? If somebody has a known autoimmune condition, or maybe we're suspecting like some, you know, like brain inflammation or something like that, maybe we pump the brakes on it. Maybe we try a different type of dairy, like, you know, sheep or goat or camel or something like that. And then maybe crazy enough, maybe plants in some people are causing enough gut irritation that, that that ends up leading to the dairy causing a problem. There's some interesting literature talking about the combination of dairy and garlic being very pro-allergenic. And you think about things like pesto and pizza and stuff, you're like, oh, okay. And so I don't know if that's a good answer. Like It really is legitimately kind of complex. And it's important to go way beyond like, well, paleo says you shouldn't have it. It's like, okay, that's an okay kindergarten beginning template, but then we really do need to to get in and, and go deeper on it. And I will say, I feel like it doesn't satiate the way that other proteins do. Like it's so easy to overeat it, I feel like. And you you do little tweaks and fiddles to it. You know, it's like you have a really good Greek yogurt and I'm like, oh, this is really good. But Man, a tablespoon of strawberry preserves in this would make it really good, you know? <laughs> it's just like off to the races. So it's so amenable to tweaking a little bit and enhancing the palatability. Yeah, does that, I don't know if that helps at all, but like it's legitimately in my mind complex and like you got to figure out where is the person, what are they trying to do? And then we have to kind of assess what's going on. And it also, I'll, I'll be honest, it's one of those things where even though I think it may be a little bit in that addictive food side of things. You ask people to get rid of their cheese and they're like, fuck you. No way. I'm out. I'm done. It, like you add buy-in, you add buy-in, you add buy-in, and then you're, you're suggesting removing the cheese and they're like, I'm done. So it's also one of those things I think as practitioners, people need to be a little bit careful with. Like Maybe it's not the optimum thing, but it might also be the thing that causes this person to be an ex-client, not a current client. So I think you have to be really careful with it. 
Yeah. yeah, I think you painted the picture clear as mud for us, which is exactly what we intended, I think, too, because it is such a contentious topic. And you, it's just like the egg thing. Eat the eggs, don't eat the eggs. Bacon, eat the bacon. Right. It's the same with the dairy. And, and this is where I really appreciate your personalized nutrition approach, you know, as far as like just meet the client where they are, like, does it work for them? Does it not work for them? Is it causing issues or is it not? Is there an addiction quality or characteristic here or not? Yeah. And just kind of seeing where it goes from there. So thank you for <laughs> answering that. Sure. Yeah. And I think for most people, it's like you only find out if it's really affecting you by eliminating it for a certain yep. amount of time. And then you yep. get your answer. And you also then learn what your quote unquote relationship with it is like if you start right. wanting to attack people and like murder people yep. for cheese, like then, you know, okay, maybe there's some issues that we need to look at. And maybe this is not the food for you. Absolutely. Yep. And, so, that, and that elimination takes a little bit of the emotionality out of it. It's like, it's 30 days. Just want to yeah. see, just kicking tires on it. And then usually you get some good buy-in there. Yeah. Right. For yep. sure. Just an experiment, right? Yep. So you are a leader in the health and wellness space. So I'm wondering, and our audience probably wants to know, what do you do for your health every single day? Like something that is non-negotiable. You make sure you do these things. And then is there things that you struggle with? And how do you deal with those things? Oh, man. I really like sleep is probably my primary focus. Like I try to stack the deck very favorably for getting in bed early. Our daughters are seven and nine. And because we homeschool, it simplifies things a lot in some ways and complexifies some other things. But our oldest just got advanced up into another jujitsu class. So for the first time, we have like an after school activity that is fairly late. Like her class doesn't wrap up until 630 half hour to get home, seven o'clock, which for a lot of people may sound early, but like we are hermits. We tend to go to bed pretty early. So the sleep is really something that I try to stack everything in favor of making that good. I do the best job I can to get in in bed early. Being in Montana now, like it's a different deal. Like in the summer, it's 11 o'clock and still light outside. And that's a little bit problematic, but I, I really focus on the sleep. Clearly, food is important, but I mean, I, I eat pretty simply. Hunk of protein, maybe a little bit of fruit, a little bit of cheese. I do do still throw some cheese in there now that it it doesn't give me dairy or uh, acne. And gosh, those are kind of the you know do try to get some sort of daily movement. Try to really be outside as much as I can, especially now that fall is falling. And I know it's it's going to be cold AF here here pretty soon. So I'm just trying to be outside, get as much sun on my skin as I can. All those things help a ton. And then the things I struggle with, meal prep is still hard. I feel like I mentioned this to my wife. We get through school, we do some exercise, we do jujitsu, and then it's like, oh God, we got to feed ourselves, you know? And fortunately, the kids are pretty adaptable. Like I make a pretty kick ass chicken soup, but we can't eat chicken soup every single night. Like I will burn out on that. And so the food prep is a legit challenge, you know? Like if we won the lottery, I would hire a private chef to come in like three days a week and prep two days of food and have it all queued up and ready. And that would be like, I would prefer that over like a house cleaner or anything like just having help on on meal prep would be huge. So I would say we definitely struggle on the meal prep side of things still. And I'm pretty handy in the kitchen. My wife is good with that stuff. But you just run out of time. And, and this circles back around, I think, to... Why are eat convenient, hyper palatable foods so appealing? Because like it doesn't take any damn time. The cleanup is easy. 
the portion size thing is really easy to manage. So you're not worried about wasting money by throwing food away that people aren't eating. So like I've been talking to Nikki about that. Like I've had a greater appreciation for the challenges, particularly for folks with kids, because at some point you just run out of time in the day. And no matter how quick you try to like throw together some burgers or something like that, there's still just time. And then you've you just nuked your kitchen again. And so you got to clean the kitchen and, you know, try to stay on top of all that stuff. So I would say meal prep is definitely something that we struggle with. And I have much more empathy on that front than what I've perhaps had in the past. Yeah. You're like recapping my entire evening last night where I, it was like two o'clock and I'm like, oh my God, I have to feed children again. What do I do? You know, it's like, oh, chicken out of the freezer, you know, texting my husband, hey, when you get home, you know, the whole thing. And I mean, I don't think I've heard a realer answer yet. <laughs> like what you still struggle with. And it's just like, you're, like you said, you're 50, you've got kids, you know, you've been doing this most of your life and it's still a difficult thing to plan and prep and get all the things done. So that leads us to kind of our final question for you. Um, God, we got through it all. Wow. I know, right? Yeah. yeah. So we have kind of a signature question and I like to, I like to tweak it a little bit for each guest. So if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about food, movement, sleep, stress management, community, what would it be? I think I alluded to this a little bit earlier on, but it would be fascinating to be able to go back in time, take two universes and run them parallel. And one is, you know, Rob Wolf, the food guy, and the other one is Rob Wolf, the sleep guy. And I would be really interested to know where my careers would go and what type of impact I would ultimately have. Because I think that if I could couch everything in terms of sleep, you're not immediately in that like shit fight of the diet wars, you know, paleo versus vegan versus this versus that, you know, it's, but then a little bit of the challenge here is I would say it's only been maybe the last five years that pushing sleep and circadian biology has become a little bit mainstream. So it may have been way way too early to do that. But I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by that idea. And it may be something that I, I just shift more towards because I really do think, you know, when we think about like appetite control, when we think about behavior mod, like if you're sleep deprived, you're done. Like you are done. You already lost the fight, you know, and you think about people with shift work, single parents, young kids, like all of that, like the deck is so stacked against you. But there's some really important mitigating things you can do. Wearing blue blockers in the evening, getting blackout curtains, taking a cool shower before bed. Doesn't have to be bone chilling cold, but you know, just get your body cool, slide into the, the covers and you know, fall asleep. Maybe use a little bit of melatonin occasionally and stuff like that. I'd be really interested to know how my impact would have gone if it had all been couched in terms of sleep. And then we could talk about food. It's like, well, I still have all this gas and bloating and it's hard to fall asleep. Okay, well, we need to modify our, our food, you know, and I have these blood sugar swings, and especially today with trackers, you know, like aura rings and stuff like that. It's like, well, your HRV score sucks and it looks like your blood sugar is peaking here. So we need a lower carb diet. And then it's kind of like, hey, it's your body telling me this. It's not my fault, it's, you know, and so it like de emotionalizes that I'm not the bad guy coming to them telling them they need to do, to do something different. And I think as people start sleeping better, it's easier to make dietary shifts. Like a lot of that kind of addictive behavior. A good friend of mine, Kirk Parsley, and he would be great for y'all to have on. He's a retired Navy SEAL and he's also a, a sleep expert. He made the point that like ADHD, the symptoms of ADHD and sleep deprivation are indistinguishable. 
Like, and so there was a, a high school in Austin that pushed its start time back one hour. And in one year, they had an 85% reduction in motor vehicle accidents within the kids that were coming and going from school. It was stunning. And like, they're all like, there was like a 70% reduction in like kids going to detention and this and that. It was, our kids are just fucking chronically sleep deprived, you know, like horribly so. And at a period of their life where they're, they're going through puberty, they haven't like fully figured out all the social affect of like being able to keep your shit together when you're, you're tired and everything. And so, yeah, I wonder what my world would be like and what the impact would be if, if I had more sleep. There's so much rich, fertile ground there. And I think sometimes it's a, uh, the only people that I get real pushback from on the sleep topic are the type A corporate exec hard chargers where they're like, I'll sleep when I'm dead. Sleep is for the week. And then the cool thing about that though, there's so much data on like computer engineers where they have these programs that track how many lines of code people write in a given period of time and what their error rate is when they need to go back and fix it. And it's crystal clear, like people benefit more from going to bed and sleeping than they do staying up and pushing really hard. There's times where you need a deadline and you have to just kind of suck it up and do it. But turning that into a day-to-day practice, it's clear that people perform at a lower level. And when people are super performance-driven, that's been the hook that I'm able to, to get into like that corporate exact, like hard charger type person. Yeah, no, I love that answer. And it makes so much sense. And it's, it's honestly sleep when I'm dead. You know, that has been my motto. I think that's for most people's motto. Yep. That's what we were told. Sleeping is wasting time, time that you could be doing things, right? Yep. And it's actually gives you time. And what a game changer it was when I started to make it a priority in my life as well. So where can our listeners find you? Where can they get Elementy? You know, where they, where can they buy their element? What's the best way to get a hold of you? Yeah, my main website is robwolf.com. We have a community called the Healthy Rebellion. We do like three times a year resets. And it's just kind of a, a cool community that is off of the social media insanity. So it's not algorithmically driven to make you hate each other. People get along in there pretty well, which is a a bonus. We have a a weekly podcast, also the same title, Healthy Rebellion Radio. And then I generate a ton of content over at drinkelement.com. And that's where you can folks can check out Element. I think we still have like a free plus shipping deal where people can check it out. They go there. And we'll shake you down for an email. But if you pay like four bucks or something, then they'll they'll send you a sample pack of Element and folks can check it out. The chocolate salt, deadly. So it's, delicious. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I, that, there's magic in that glass, I will tell you. Yeah. Well, thank you again so much for being here. This has been amazing. I don't know what I expected coming into this conversation. I was so excited when we said we got the the acceptance to have you as a guest, but certainly whatever that expectation was, you have, I don't know, you've charmed me for sure. So awesome. I, appreciate, well, thank you. I appreciate your time so not, much. Not to brown nose too much, but when I read the list of questions, I told Elizabeth, this is going to be the funnest podcast I do all year. And it was. So thank you. Yeah. This is oh. by a mile the most fun I've had. We talked a little protein, carbs, fat, but we got to talk about a lot of other stuff. And it was really fun. And I I really think at the end of the day, information isn't what's hindering people. Like having supportive, interactive coaches and professionals like y'all 
this is what folks need. Like there are some people that pick up a diet book and figure it out, but the vast majority of people need help. They need support. They need a community because community is one of the four pillars of being a human and it's indispensable. So the work y'all are doing is just amazing. And this podcast is amazing. And clearly you put a stunning amount of thought into asking the questions. Like my most favorite people in the world are not the answer people. It's the questions that people ask. And y'all asked amazing questions. And it's just huge honor being on the show. Oh, thanks so much, Rob. Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, we will let you get probably some food in you and move on to your next appointment of the day. We appreciate it so much. Thank you again. And please let us know if there's anything we can do to help you out. Will do. Take care. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.